Yo, yo, check it out. So don't follow me up and down your market. All your little chops, so he has to be a target of the nationwide boycott. Juice with the people, that's what the boy got. So pay respect to the black fist, or we'll burn your storm right down to a crisp. And then we'll see ya, cause you can't turn to get him in the black career. You just heard Ice Cube's Black Korea, a song that cuts right to the bone when it comes to immense tension between the black and Korean American communities in L.A. This song was written and recorded in 1991, which puts it squarely in conversation with the outrage surrounding Tasha Harlins and Rodney King. In the song, you can hear Ice Cube bring up the idea of a nationwide boycott of Asian American-owned businesses. Boycotts of these businesses were brought up often by community groups angry at the Du family and other Korean-American families operating stores in black communities. Even though many will point to this song being one of those small nudges toward conflict between blacks and Korean-Americans, there's another side to it. Ice Cube actually met with the Korean-American Grocers Association in February of 92, a few months before the riots. He wrote a letter trying to bridge the divide, so to say. The song was, quote, directed at a few stores where my friends and I had actual problems, end quote. He also said, quote, working together, we can help solve these problems and build a bridge between our communities, end quote. I should note that Ice Cube's death certificate album, which is phenomenal, excoriates pretty much everybody. I mean, I don't think anybody got spared in that album. Korean Americans were just one of the groups he singled out. So with that out of the way, let's jump right in where I left you in the last podcast. Racial tensions had risen year after year, not only because of police violence, but because of cases like Tasha Harlan's and the violence between the two communities. The riot broke out Wednesday, April 29, 1992, first at 71st in Normandy, moving to Florence and Normandy shortly thereafter, and then pretty much expanding across the city from there. Wednesday night, the police were outgunned and had no coherent plan other than calling in the National Guard. On Thursday morning, April 30th, the mayor and the police chief dithered in their press conference. The National Guard really wasn't deploying, for whatever reason. Thursday, April 30th, would thus become a ferocious day of rioting that would leave everyone in the city stunned. The subject of today's podcast will be the riots' confrontation with Korean Americans in Los Angeles, specifically in Koreatown, which, as we've said before, was a cultural center for Korean American life in the United States. The picture that started off my podcast, the so-called Roof Koreans, was taken during this conflict in K-Town. Geographically, Koreatown lays north and slightly west of South Central. A few thoroughfares run between South Central LA and Koreatown. One of those is one you should recognize by now, Normandy Ave, because I think I've named it a dozen times at this point. Normandy cuts north-south. As the morning of April 30th began, rioters surged northward towards Koreatown using Normandy, burning and looting as they went. Fires sprang up, the results of riotous torching, throughout the early morning hours. Some shop owners saved their stores by spray-painting black-owned business on the windows. It didn't save all of them, though. Many were looted anyway, but on a street in South Central, the black-owned businesses on one side were untouched, while the Korean-American businesses were torched and looted. The racial targeting was real, and it had already started that night. Remember how I opened this podcast? I mean, way back in the first episode, I asked the question, what would it take for you to strike out against your neighbor? I hope you came up with an answer to that question, because I want to ask you the opposite. Let me ask you this. What would it take for you to stay your hand when the emotion overtakes you? I mean, when you're angry. I mean, when you see violence happening right in front of you. What does it take for you to stop? Stop everything right then. Maybe leave 
What would it take for you to leave? And then how might you defend yourself when your neighborhood turned against you? Korean Americans already knew that the riot lurched in their direction. Like I mentioned in the last podcast, shopkeepers with stores in South Central phoned one another as the violence began, warning of the ire against Korean-owned businesses. The violence spread outward like ripples on a pond. And while I think the Korean-American community was taken by surprise initially, it also didn't take them long to figure out that they were being specifically targeted. That informal communication network, those phone calls from one shopkeeper to another, gained some legs with the interesting addition of Radio Korea. I also admit that this story upcoming about Radio Korea is interesting to me because I'm a podcaster, and I'm also a ham radio operator, licensed one too. I love the science behind wireless communication, and I love the audio medium as a way to get information across. Radio Korea played a critical community role in Koreatown as the mob violence bore down on them. Uh, I'm Richard you just heard the voice of Richard Choi, the vice president of Radio Korea at the time, and now a 28-year veteran of the radio station. Choi wears glasses and occasionally breaks out in a reserved smile as he talks. But that smile seems to only emerge when, in his telling, the situation gets so grim that he can't seem to believe what happened and what he's talking about. The audio comes from a video series of him talking about his experiences during the riot, which was published in 2017 for the 25th anniversary of Sial Gu, or 429, April 29th. That's right. In the Korean community, there's actually a shorthand for the riots. That's how traumatic they were. Choi says that he's the last person working at the station who was there during the riots. He'd been on high alert since Reginald Denny had been filmed getting beaten half to death in the middle of Normandy, Choi had been on his way home Wednesday night, his regular commuting time, but he called his station to tell them not to change shifts. Something big was going down. Rushing back to the station, Richard Choi started to get the first of the phone calls that would define the next few days at his radio station. Translation, quote, callers were asking, what should I do in this case or that case? Some callers were asking the station to call 911 on their behalf, either because they couldn't get through or they didn't speak enough English to make themselves understood, end quote. That's a frightening situation, right? So it ended up that Radio Korea, this small community radio station in Koreatown, would try to gather info to pass on to the cops, but they could barely make it through to 911 either. He further says, and I'm paraphrasing a little here, quote, So we broadcasted the following. 911 isn't answering our calls. You'd better call Radio Korea if an emergency happens. We'll write them all down and tell the dispatcher all at once when we get through, end quote. Remember, the LAPD is reeling at this point. At the end of the last podcast, I played audio of Chief Gates and Mayor Bradley's joint press conference where the mayor is chastising city employees who don't want to come to work, and Chief Gates is acting like a deer caught in the headlights. The National Guard had only deployed eight to 900 troops, even though it had been 12 hours since the request for Guard troops went through. Now Korean-Americans were reaping the consequences of bad planning. And so Koreatown's homegrown station, Radio Korea, began to assume the position of relay operator. All right, let me explain relay. Like I said, I'm an amateur radio operator. If you don't know what ham radio is, it's basically a licensed personal radio style, like CB, but without the cussing. One of the responsibilities of ham radio operators that separates them from CB is to understand how to relay messages during emergencies. 
Our organization, the American Radio Relay League, has helped out in emergencies from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina. Radio and wireless communication becomes critical during an emergency. Because radio is a broadcast medium, it can be heard over long distances and by many people at once. The internet, if in case you were wondering, by contrast, is not a broadcast medium. It's a point-to-point communication system. That's why when the power goes out and, uh, you know, the stuff hits the fan, you often lose cell phone reception and can't get through. Compare that to ham radio, where I can run my equipment off of a car battery and broadcast to everybody within my range. Radio is great for emergency communication, which is why military and law enforcement use it to this day. On April 30th, 1992, I can't imagine what besides 911 wasn't working. The power was probably out in places, phone lines too. Normal communication networks began to break down. Korean Americans had to make their own relay system to get information from one place to another. Radio Korea leapt into that gap. A relay system is really simple. All right, I'm a community organizer. I've got my radio. I sit in one place. People relay messages to me. I send them to the higher echelons, maybe emergency responders. They get it. They act. They send confirmation back to me. I relay it to the person in need. But I want you to imagine for a second being thrust into that situation. Radio Korea in Koreatown, I don't get the feeling, was some kind of NPR affiliate with a big budget, whole development team and marketing team, everybody ready to do fun drive maybe, put you on the phone. No. Radio Korea was described as a sort of market or bazaar of information for the Korean American community in L.A. Here's a little description. Quote, there was entertainment, music, art. And there's a second category, which was news from the homeland, what's happening in Korean elections and Korean business. This was especially important for newer immigrants who may be homesick and wanted to keep close ties to the motherland. And in a third category, you have local news, things that are happening around Koreatown, end quote. So here you are, you're Richard Choi, you work for the radio station. You went from doing news, traffic, weather, maybe an art story, maybe about the dance troupe that's coming to town, to becoming essentially the first responder dispatch phone line. And this is in the early 90s at a community radio station that probably has limited equipment and capacity. It was all hands on deck. Without the wireless communication from Radio Korea, I don't know what would have happened in Koreatown that day. Choi tells one story from the first night, April 29th, as the verdict was read and the riots started, saying that they got a call. The caller said, quote, I'm in a liquor store somewhere, and an African-American mob came into the store next door and set it on fire. What should I do? We asked, and this is Choi asking, who's the owner of the store next door? The caller replied, he's Korean, and he went back home early because he felt very anxious today, end quote. The caller relayed the name of the store, and Richard Choi's Radio Korea broadcaster announced, quote, to everyone, is the owner of the store here and listening? The store is on fire. Please dial 911 and get out there right now, end quote. In that case, the owner actually called the radio station back and said, quote, yes, I came and the store is on fire. What should I do? End quote. The radio station, Radio Korea, realized how bad things were getting. They shifted strategies. They pleaded for people to abandon their stores, to get out with their lives while they still could. Choi said their message became, quote, No matter how important the store is, you better go home safely rather than losing your life. End quote. So that was their message to the community on April 29th when the riots first broke out. Lives are more important than property. You can't bring your things with you when you die. Radio Korea's thinking changed, though, on April 30th. 
As rioters streamed into the neighborhood and cut a path of destruction through parts of Koreatown, one man got fed up. A grocery store owner and the president of the Koreatown Chamber of Commerce, Kiwon Ha walked into the radio station. In the pictures I've found of Kiwon Ha, he has closely set eyes, a large forehead, and he dresses real sharp. I doubt Ha or anyone else in the radio station had gotten any sleep and probably looked less than best. That morning, Ha had been organizing a defensive perimeter on the major thoroughfares passing through Koreatown, looking to avenues like Western and Normandy for rioters. Ha knew Richard Choi, the VP of the radio station, and knew what he had to do to rally the community. The businessman walked into the bustling radio station headquarters and went to Richard Choi's office. He put a pistol down on Richard Choi's desk. Hell of a way to start your morning at the station, right? Here's Choi retelling the story. Ha, the grocery store owner, said to Choi, the manager, What are you guys doing? The radio station manager asked Ha what he meant. Ha said, Do you know how we made Koreatown? If you keep urging people to go home in order to avoid danger, then Koreatown will disappear. What are you trying to do? We've worked so hard to build Koreatown. Now there's a war going on outside, and we have to protect Koreatown for ourselves. Choi said, what do you mean? How do you want to protect it? Ha replied, don't you think we have to stop the mob from setting our stores on fire? Choi said, then do you want to fight with guns? Ha replied, why not? If you watch the video from where we get this audio, Choi looks off to his left as he tells you about this exchange. He has a kind of a pained expression on his face. He says, quote, in reality, until then, the African-Americans didn't come up to Koreatown that much, end quote. It was kind of a non sequitur when I was watching this video. I didn't understand why he said it, but it's interesting. You might remember in my previous descriptions of Koreatown, I talked about how it was an interesting mix of signs in Korean, signs in Spanish, catering to two different immigrant communities. Choi's reaction, even all those years later, tells you how surprised he was to hear about this kind of violence. But hold that thought about the racial composition of the rioters. It will come up again, I promise. Richard Choi says that their legal counsel was at the radio station that day, probably working overtime. He paid their lawyer a visit. I'm not sure who this lawyer was, but their decision and what they said that day had an enormous impact on the community. The lawyer advised that the use of firearms to protect private property would be self-defense. If Radio Korea began to broadcast information pertaining to the defense of Koreatown businesses, it would not be advocating for illegal activity. So Choi and the rest of Radio Korea's leadership had to make the call. Were they going to advocate for the defense of Koreatown? Or would they back down and do what seemed like the safer thing, tell people to leave? Their choice was pretty clear. They put the pistol-toting Kiwon Ha on the radio, where he made a call to action. Quote, Don't go home. Protect your business. Your business is your life. I gotta say, I've gone to Chamber of Commerce events in my career. They're usually pretty harmless. People drink coffee, exchange business cards, they brown those. I have never heard the head of a Chamber of Commerce take to the microphone to call for the defense of the community. It's pretty incredible. As it turned out, Kiwan Ha's call to action would resonate. But before we get into that, I do think that the radio station's first reaction to tell people to protect their lives and not their businesses had a kind of nobility to it. Here was a community that had arrived in America in fits and starts over many decades, even centuries, 
and tried to find their way through American capitalism and culture, living in a multi-ethnic city with immense historical problems that they couldn't solve. Like in Exodus, Korean Americans were able to say, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Now the country they'd come to live in had exploded into violence based on grudges that were, for the most part, foreign to them. Their strange land became stranger still. Danger prior to the riot took the form of stochastic violence. I think I said that right, stochastic. Random robberies, holdups, muggings, but random. A slow drip of outrage, so to say. But the violence threatening them in 1992 wasn't a leak in the roof of their house. It was a tidal wave about to break them. The first instinct was to conserve what they had without getting into any more trouble. Running seemed safer. But Koreatown was, for some, the bastion of Korean-American life. A lot of people found it noisy, crime-ridden, impoverished. It was crowded, multi-ethnic, and in its own way, thoroughly Americanized. But the Korean-Americans who wanted to continue the traditions of the old country had worked decades to make it into an ethnic enclave in the tradition of Chinatown and Japantown. Leadership in Koreatown hosted cultural events and fashion shows. If you wanted real Korean cuisine, you went to Koreatown to find it prepared correctly, or heck, to find the right ingredients at the grocery stores. The K-Town I see in the records has a bright, keen kind of vibrancy that leaps at you. It was as close to Korea as you could get in America. It was the last embodiment of that Korean concept we mentioned in the first podcast, Homeland Consciousness. Kiwon Ha's strong reaction was of someone backed into a corner, their family under threat. Can you blame him, though? Can you blame him for wanting to use deadly force as a deterrent? As the head of the Chamber of Commerce, he'd seen so many people lift themselves up out of poverty by banding together with other community members and owning their own businesses. The people of Koreatown had come to a strange land that was now betraying them by no longer safeguarding the peace. As I'm recording this in 2020, that's really the question, isn't it? Do you have a right to peace? To what extent can you safeguard your own property? It's a huge question. And I mean, look at this. This is almost 30 years ago, and we still don't know the answer. Ha's words would resonate despite something I also mentioned in the first podcast, namely class differences. Rich Koreans, remember, trashed poor Koreans. Ancestry mattered, and it seemed that Korean Americans wanted to recreate the class divides to define their home country. But on the morning of April 30th, Radio Korea's tone shifted. Those times of division had passed. It took Koreatown being existentially threatened for the community to galvanize. Choi says, quote, If we had continued to broadcast on April 30th, saying, Since your lives are important, please go to your homes, Koreatown may not have been in existence today. This is because there was neither police nor fire trucks at the time Koreatown was in flames, end quote. The community started to mobilize. Angela Oh, the attorney I've quoted, well, plenty of times so far, also hit the streets on the morning of April 30th. I have to shake my head at Angela's utter determination to go into the fray. This is a great clip that tells you how it felt the morning of the 30th and how some people were stubbornly going to render assistance no matter what kind of danger they were in. She talks about how the Korean Bar Association was attempting to work with the local Black American Bar Association and how she and her colleagues were trying to help out clients caught in the war zone. To me, Angela's actions show the utter lack of response by the city and how citizens needed to step up. 
And um, I ended up going to um, the office of John Lim, who is the president this year of the Korean American Bar, and we went to his office on the 27th floor. And from his office, I counted 19 fires going where I could see the flames. And I saw many more just sort of smoldering areas of smoke and lots of people running around in the street. And one of his clients called. We were talking. We were on the phone to the Langston Bar, which is the Black uh, Bar Association in L.A., and, and we wanted to um, get a time together with their leadership immediately to sort of figure out what we could do. We knew there was going to be legal assistance needs. We also knew that there were going to be arrests. We also knew that there was going to be like a lot of um, rhetoric coming out. We wanted to have some sense and coordinate with each other. And, and the reason we were able to do this was we had kind of cultivated a relationship with the minority bars in the LA area because of all of the stuff that had, ha had preceded the King verdict in our city that was contributing to the tensions mounting. And um, in the middle of that conversation, John got an emergency call from one of his clients in Koreatown who was like screaming on the phone saying, get down here, you know, my security guard is threatening to leave and there are people with guns and, you know, he's saying that we can't pay him enough to keep him here and I've paid him in advance, get down here. I don't know what he thought John was going to do. I mean, John, John's the son of a minister, you know, and he's not going to go down. So anyway, he, uh, he looked at me and said, should we go down there? I said, yeah, let's go down there. Um, so we got in his car, and as we were driving down Olympic Boulevard into Koreatown, I could actually feel the heat from the buildings burning. And you saw set on many corners uh, groups of people, 30, 40 people, standing on the corner. And I saw a lot of youth, you know, just heaving um, bricks and whatever they could to throw through windows so they could break open the, um, the gates and then get in. And I saw a lot of people running out with stuff. And, and these were not luxury items that I saw people running out with. You know, people were grabbing things like food items <laughs> and, um, you know, dish racks. I saw this older woman with a plastic dish rack and a, and a mat to go under it for her, her sink board. I saw um, fathers carrying diapers, you know, tons of diapers. I saw a um, pregnant woman and her child carrying food, okay, out of these stores. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just wild. This cannot be the United States of America. And then we come upon the corner of um, Olympic and, and Hoover, and I see Korean men with guns, Uzis, and M16s in, in their fatigues. I'm thinking to myself, somebody is going to get hurt. This is not good. And what is going on here, John? And he kept saying, I don't know. And we were both like real sort of nervously sort of chuckling and trying to take in what was happening. and. And um, I was not afraid at that point. And then when we got to the other side of Koreatown, found his client, got his client to go on home. It wasn't worth it. Just go on home, lock up the best you can. We started heading back. It was about 4.30. And I started getting scared because I realized this is really dangerous out here. I mean, this is not, you know, uh, people are not behaving in a way that um, they're going to be able to rationalize come tomorrow or next week. And um, he. He uh, made sure that I got home that night, and then we had the curfew set, and we were not permitted out on the streets after dusk for the next four nights. Those gangs of armed Korean Americans would become one of the enduring images of the riots. And while Angela Oh and her colleagues worked on peaceful response using their legal connections, these militiamen were at the eye of the storm. They were young men like Han Sung Chang, who was running around town directing a militia movement at the same age I was a freshman in college getting a C- in Psychology 101. Take a minute to listen to Ha talk about the group he formed, 
I'm going to paraphrase some of the translation here for clarity. Quote, we formed a youth group on December 1st, before the Sialgu riots broke out. 24 people started to work as members of the youth group. During that time, Korean merchants were often robbed at a bank or at night. To deter these crimes, we tried to protect any Korean merchant who needed our help. So we offered protection from the time they closed the shops until they got into the safety of their cars and drove home, end quote. Imagine that the only thing standing between you and danger on the street is a gang. Because even though what they're doing is admirable on one level, on another level it's kind of scary. How mature is your judgment about the appropriate application of violence when you're 17? Then again, we've covered the absurdly young age of World War II soldiers on Tinderbox before. What you quickly learn listening to Han's story is how critical these youngsters were in preventing the future that Kiwon Ha had envisioned. Han and his youth group had heard that there might be a riot after the verdict come in, which means that he and his group were more in touch with the city than the mayor and the police chief, apparently. Quote, We were on high alert and made a concerted effort to avoid conflict with the African-American community, end quote. Han goes on to say, quote, After listening to the news in advance, I thought someone should protect Koreatown. The riot broke out on April 29th, but we didn't imagine it would escalate and grow so big at the same time, end quote. He says that on April 29th, they sought to block Western Ave and Vermont Ave, two of the main thoroughfares, to keep rioters at bay. Police were on site. The police present that first night approached the group, but only to scold them for having firearms. It didn't take long for the police to flee after that. That would be some of the last police sightings Korean Americans like Han would have for days. Han's first youth group assignment for the Koreatown defense was that of the Gaju Market, one of the many flashpoints of the riot. And I have to reflect on the first youth group assignment. It makes it sound like a CCD or after-school program. Anyway, riots hit grocery stores hard the night of Wednesday, April 29th, and the early morning of April 30th. Koreatown defenders realized that unless those grocery stores remained intact from looters, the residents of Koreatown would have no food until relief came. They had no idea how long the siege would last, after all. What if nobody came to help? What if the riots went on and on? Uncertainty drives people to extraordinary action. Korean Americans, many of whom didn't understand the grievances of the black American community when it came to policing, might have thought that an all-out civil war was about to begin in the United States. Remember, the country that they'd come from was homogenous, with few minority ethnic groups. It was not the melting pot that the United States was. Remember, they were strangers in a strange land. Han describes how the owner of the store, the Gaju Market, took the boys to the rooftop and fired warning shots at the mob approaching below. Han swears on the recording, he swears, that he and the rest of the defenders did not shoot at the crowd. They only used warning shots and shots at pavement as a deterrent. This was repeated in other accounts I read. Some Korean American defenders swore they only used their guns as a deterrent. That isn't the story that others tell, though. One of the more noble Koreatown militiamen active in 92 was David Ju. That's J-O-O. As a Korean-American immigrant, he was part of the working-class community in Koreatown. And out of the many Korean-Americans who got involved in civil defense during the riots, he's one of the most outspoken. In fact, I'm about to read a statement he gave to Congress in March of 95 about his role in the riots. This testimony came as part of a hearing before the Subcommittee on Crime, which was part of the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives. The title of the hearing was Gun Laws and the Need for Self-Defense. So, I think you can imagine where this is going. David Jew is lanky, wearing thick glasses. 
He talks matter-of-factly and has sort of a sardonic sense of humor in the accounts I've read from him and the videos I've watched. What's wild about him testifying in front of Congress is that he's really your everyman in Koreatown. Chu was a dedicated wage worker at the time of the riots. So let me read his statement. Quote, My name is David Ju. As a Korean immigrant and a victim of the 1992 Los Angeles riots, I have seen the effects of gun control from many different perspectives. End quote. He goes on to describe the first day of the riots when he began to defend his turf. Quote, when rioting first broke out in our part of Los Angeles, I was working in the Western gun shop with the owner, Richard Park, who also owned a jewelry store across the street. We were busy helping customers when one of Mr. Park's other employees called him and told him that the jewelry store was being robbed. Mr. Park called the LAPD for help. Then he took a shotgun and some handguns with him and went across the street to his jewelry store. As soon as I could lock up and secure the gun store from the looters, I followed him there. By the time I arrived, the jewelry store was completely looted. The rioters had nearly cleaned it out, and Richard and his employees were guarding what was left of the store with their guns. Four LAPD officers were there with their vehicles, so we felt safe, even though the rioters were right across the street. So then we went to the back of the jewelry store and opened the safe where the valuable jewelry was kept. The looters had stolen the jewelry in the front of the store, but not what was in the safe. But as we carried out that jewelry to our van, we saw the rioters had started setting fires all around. By then, those four LAPD officers had left. We were all alone, and the rioting mobs were closing in. Soon they started shooting at us with the guns they'd stolen from nearby gun stores. Two of our employees got shot, and my arm was injured by broken glass in the shooting. That night, this is April 29th, the first night, I stood guard on the roof of the Lucky Electronics Shop across the street from our gun shop, along with several other neighbors. I had a 12-gauge riot shotgun and a Beretta 92F pistol. Another employee had a Colt AR-15 Sporter rifle. We called the police for help, but they never came. Some looters tried to break down the door of the gun store, but we fired warning shots that drove them away. This happened many times, and before it was over, we had probably fired 200 rounds of ammunition. End quote. And that was just the first night. I've had a lot of jobs in my lifetime. I don't know if I'd ever report to work if it means I might get shot. But if you can't already tell, circumstances had crossed a threshold. There was an invisible line that Korean Americans probably didn't know they'd set, and it had been breached. The breaching of that line might have happened slowly with the introduction of black-on-Korean violence with the Latasha Harlan's case, but Koreatown and the Korean American community as a whole became more tightly knit by the minute. I also have to wonder if that bootstrap mentality, if you try you will succeed, had driven these men to take matters into their own hands. Korean American militiamen had taken matters into their own hands and were going to represent themselves and provide their own self-defense. The next day, as the assault on Koreatown came in earnest, David Ju was back at the Western Gun Shop. Nope, he didn't leave town. He didn't quit his job like I probably would. He went back to the gun shop to fight it out. This defense of the Western gun store is depicted in brutal clarity in the documentary L.A. Burning. I'm going to put in some of the audio from that documentary here and then comment on it afterward. At that time, I was in the uh, gun store and I have received a phone call from my employer. His name is Richard Park. He also owned the jewelry store right down the block there. And he said, David, we're having a gunfight in here. So can you just come over and help us? We already called police, and when I arrived here, at the beginning, I can see the LAPD, the you know, vehicle with like a three, four officers were there. 
So, oh, we have a police here. We are safe. But as soon as the gun fighting started, they ran away. Fine. So, uh-oh. We are on our own. Then what I saw from across the street is a lot of uh, looters were armed. They're heavily armed. And they're shooting at us. Bullet was coming to my face here and there, so I thought I'm going to get shot. So, you know, naturally, I just trying to protect my face, my hands like this momentarily. Then I was thinking, oh, wait a minute, what, what am I doing? So I just, you know, put it down. Whoever actually saw actually, you know, having guns, I didn't hesitate to shoot them. You know, otherwise, I could have got shot. So I just want to quote what he says in case you didn't get the audio. Quote, we already called the police. Then when I arrived here at the beginning, I could see the LAPD vehicle with like three or four officers there. Oh, we have the police here. We're safe. But as soon as the gunfighting started, they ran away. Goodbye. So, uh-oh, we're on our own. Then what I saw from across the street is a lot of looters. We're armed, heavily armed, and they were shooting at us. Bullets were coming to my face here and there, so I thought, I'm going to get shot. So naturally, I'm just trying to protect my face. My hands are like this momentarily, end quote. He actually puts his hands up to guard his face in the video. Quote, oh, wait a minute. What am I doing? So I just put the hands down. Whoever I saw actually having guns, I didn't hesitate to shoot them. Otherwise, I could have gotten shot, end quote. So there you have it. David Jew was firing his pistol at anyone who approached the Western gun store carrying a weapon. These weren't warning shots. I mean, that's not what he's saying. They were saying they were shooting at people who had weapons. Why anyone would try to loot a gun store when the owners are home is kind of beyond me. But then again, if you intend to loot and burn an entire neighborhood, having some firearms helps you with that objective. So were the defenders of the gun store justified in this action? Should they have let the looters get a hold of hundreds of weapons and the requisite ammunition? You'll have to answer that for yourself. I'm not even going to go there. What's interesting is that David Jew was commenting on some footage taken of him at the gun store, actually firing his weapon. I'm going to play a clip of the news crew on the scene who actually took that footage of the battle at the Western gun store. In the video, the camera operator is in this really wild position relative to the gunfight. They're standing facing this mini mall where the gun shop is. David Jew and his boss are in front of the store with pistols. Mr. Park, the owner, stands with one hand behind his back as he aims his pistol with the other. Jew looks like he has a 9mm Beretta, and he also fires one-handed with a calm and determined look on his face except when he's shouting. What's wild is that they're firing their pistols to either side of the camera crew. In other words, the camera is right smack in the middle of the firefight. From what I can see, either of the two Korean-American men could have turned their pistols a few inches and struck the cameraman. It's definitely some of the most dramatic footage you find in this riot, so you have to go look it up. Look up David Jew and look up the burning, uh, L.A. Burning documentary. In my opinion, somebody should have won a Pulitzer for this footage. You can hear the disbelief in the anchor's voice as she comments later on what she saw when they were taking this video. So here it goes. Moments later, the Korean merchants and store owners who own that shopping complex, they... They were talking to me for a moment. They said they were fed up. They walked away. Next thing I knew, they walked out of their stores. Three of them were holding guns, and they just started firing at everybody and anybody.
We were showing some of this to you live earlier. Then what happened, apparently a car full of some young black kids pulled up on the other side, and they started shooting back. You're going to start to see uh, what, what they noticed what was going on. They started shooting back, and uh, we were right in the middle of it. Uh, it. It all happened so quickly. To tell you the truth, I thought they were blanks at first. I couldn't believe that these guys had actually pulled out loaded guns, but they were. There were bullets flying all over. And here you, here you can see, this is where they see the cars pull up, and they start to shoot back. And they start to take cover realizing i think what they had started there but uh, there's there's just a, a simmering point and they just they boiled over i mean i saw it happen i was talking to the gentleman i saw it in his eyes he ran away from me um i thought he was going to give me his business card i had asked for an interview and next thing i knew as i say he came out with those guns uh we got out of there as fast as we could which wasn't fast enough um but we were okay we didn't get hit nobody nobody uh in our crew got hurt david jew makes an interesting assertion when talking about his defense of the koreatown small businesses I want you to listen to what he says. My experience was, that, you know, whoever attacked and, you know, looting the Koreatown was not African-Americans. It was more likely Hispanic um, trollers or gangbangers. It wasn't African-Americans, but Hispanic gang members doing this looting and rioting, he says. Cholos. Wait, what's that about? I thought this was all black on Korean violence. Interestingly, this kind of jives with the observation from Richard Choi that black people didn't generally come to Koreatown, but instead the borough was in direct conversation with the Hispanic community. Angela Oh confirmed the observation by David Chu. In this part of one of her speeches during the question-answer session, someone talks about the media response as well as the racial makeup of those undertaking the violence. I didn't tell you something earlier in my remarks. When I drove through Koreatown, I did not see black faces in Koreatown. It was all Latin and white. It was all Latin and white. Okay, and I did not see on the, on the national coverage of what was happening in L.A. the truth. I saw black and white. That is not what happened in L.A. It's just simply not. Asians and Latinos were clearly missing from that picture. And I don't know why this country persists. I mean, I do know why. That's a rhetorical question in, in doing this, you know. But the images that they portray are just, um, they're not real. You know. And to further confirm this, here's Hector Tobar, a reporter from the L.A. Times at the time, talking about watching the looting that day. So on that day, I would have been in the middle of the street because there was no, uh, there were crowds filling the street here. Um, there was no traffic, really. And there was a huge crowd that was looting that, jaunt, that market over there. This building here was on fire. I could see the aisles of the store and I could see crowds of mostly Latino people running up and down the aisles, taking things, grabbing things, people running out with uh, jugs, gallon jugs of milk. To me, this starts to bring into question who the looters were on the ground that day. Because the media reports, especially the national reports, were about black on Korean violence. But what if black Korean violence wasn't the nature of the conflict in Koreatown? Doesn't that call into question the entire narrative of a black Korean conflict going on? And was this a racial conflict in nature or a class conflict? Or was it simply a matter of opportunism in the chaos? The revelation that the racial strife may not have been quite what was portrayed brings up one of the most frustrating things about researching the Korean American experience during the riots, which is the fog of war. That's what makes this podcast, the Tinderbox podcast, frustrating in general and keep picking subjects that are hard to apprehend. Understanding what happened in those days is difficult and sometimes impossible. When you see videos of the rioters themselves, 
Those who are probably responsible for the violence, they're faceless, difficult to pin down. Often they're masked. Who were these people? Were they black or Hispanic? How many people were killed by Korean-American defenders? How many were killed by the supposed open season going on between Bloods and Crips that I've read about elsewhere? Does it matter how much we qualify our assertions about racial violence, or should we try to generalize? Wow, that's a lot. I think it does matter, and I think we need to be specific when we're thinking about that last question. To this day, when you read accounts of the L.A. riots and summaries of the Korean-American experience, you find it couched as a black and Asian-American conflict. The entire narrative went cleanly from Latasha Harlins and Soonja Do over to the burning of Koreatown. But the longer I researched this, the less it was a line between the trial of Soonja Do and the events in Koreatown, and more like a squiggle or a maze. It kind of calls into question the importance of the case in the first episode, right? The one I spent almost an hour and a half on? Was that case truly a seminal moment in the relationship between these two ethnic groups? Or was it turned into a seminal moment by the media? I've beaten to death the idea that video killed the radio star. And we know that there was black on Asian violence going on in L.A. But would it have exploded this way without breathless coverage by the media? How much did it explode? It's hard to know. But I have my suspicions. David Jew, the gun store defender, says later that, quote, The only thing that stopped them from robbing us and burning down our stores was knowing that we were armed and prepared to stop them with whatever it took. End quote. He goes on to say, quote, The police couldn't protect us. For whatever reason, they weren't there when we needed them the most. The gun control laws couldn't protect us either. All the gun control laws did was kept other law abiding citizens from protecting themselves. I know from experience what that means. I carry the scars on my arm, end quote. Now is probably a good time to bring up the Constitution. The Second Amendment, the one in question here, says that, quote, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed, end quote. Was this a well-regulated militia? Depends on who you ask. So were they in the spirit of the law? I'm not sure, but I don't think that the rioters or looters or whatever you want to call them were working within the spirit of the law either, because the First Amendment states that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free speech exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. Yeah, this was not a peaceable assembly. That had ended a while ago. So you have to ask yourself, whose constitutional rights take precedent here? I want you to contrast David Jew's commentary about his gun-toting militia with this news report. I'm not exactly sure when this footage was taken, probably April 30th or May 1st by the tone of the reporters. You can hear the difference between the outside observer perspective and the perspective of a guy who was on the ground that day trying to survive. These are, they do not look like, um, sem, uh, like uh, automatic, like, like AK-47s. They seem to be uh, uh, regular rifles that they're using. But it seems like every man on that roof was armed. Yeah, that's right. And uh, thus far, there does not seem to be any, uh, uh, any uh, looting or burning, at least right where they are. I think uh, now that man up there seems to be holding a shotgun, shotgun. Larry, if I'm not I, I think, I yeah. think he's holding a shotgun, and I yeah. think one of his purposes is he wants potential looters to see it. I think 
uh, he wants people, all of them up there, want people to see that they are armed and that you uh, enter their properties at some risk. The reporters seem mystified by the idea of these guys defending their business. And they seem to wonder why there isn't looting going on. There isn't any looting, I think, because they're on top of the building with firearms. Personal firearm use, in my opinion, was a deterrent, and I think it saved lives that day. Others agree with me on that count, hence the libertarian, gun owner, roof Korean meme I found in the first place. Of course, this is all rich coming from me, the podcasting commentator sitting at the mic in his home studio 30 years after the event. I wasn't there, and I never would have wanted to be there. I prefer to have a calm life where I don't have to confront questions like, do I need to shoot a stranger to defend my property? Give me the boring life. I think I lead a simple life where I don't have to deal with the violence of an inner city. But I record these events so that you and those around you have a perspective into how it goes down when things go wrong. And what I learned in this riot and going through the events in K-Town is that there wasn't a logical rhyme or reason to events other than the bewildering blind rage, the uncertain politics of skin color, and the acquisition of material goods. All the normal social rules were off the table. Neighbor was attempting to steal from neighbor with lethal means at their disposal. Fire became a tool to cover up crime. Police weren't present. National Guard wasn't present. One story I heard about Korean-American fortifications in Koreatown was that defenders didn't have sandbags handy, so instead they stacked bags of rice for cover. If you look close in one of the pictures of the so-called roof Koreans, you can see them hiding behind those bags of rice. If you're one of my listeners, tell me, who has the moral high ground here? Who's wrong? Who's right? Or is it just the tinderbox of flame where all you can do is stop yourself from getting burned? Han, the youngster who was part of that youth group setting out to defend Koreatown, talked about the evening of April 30th as much of Koreatown was in flames and the beaming sun started to abate. Members of his group confronted some Hispanic men breaking into a store and scared them off. He then gives us one of the more interesting theories about the night. Han says, quote, In downtown L.A., Japantown and Chinatown were all guarded by police, but only Koreatown was openly unprotected, end quote. This was another shocker, especially after you get that bit about how it was mostly Hispanic Americans and not black Americans in Koreatown that day. It really flipped my understanding of the conflict on its head. The idea of other Asian-American enclaves being protected by the cops while Koreatown was not is fundamentally disturbing. It's the kind of fact that makes you want to scream conspiracy theory and cover your ears. In the book Blue Dreams, a man named Kang, a college-educated merchant in his 40s at the time, gave an overview of this abandonment, or what I might call police encirclement, that I think is enlightening. Kang says, quote, Basically, the orders were to draw a line, to cordon off the affluent neighborhoods, and to tell the looters, okay, you play here in Koreatown and South Central. It was a topsy-turvy time, and police officers were all backwards, inside out, and upside down, end quote. He talks about police chief Daryl Gates saying this, quote, Gates is not a human being. He's a bastard. The police, well, they came out big when it was safe and retreated in the face of danger, end quote. The Blue Dreams book further states, quote, Korean-American businesses were thus in the looters' playground, abandoned by the police, end quote. Another shopkeeper at the time said, quote, Daryl Gates wanted the blacks to let out their outbursts towards the Koreans because he knew that the blacks didn't feel very good towards the Koreans. I do believe there must have been some conscious politics because the police just weren't there, end quote. 
Another man suggested that the media showed looting, how easy it was to loot, and thus inspired more looting. As Kang, the merchant, also stated, quote, Koreans were doing the wrong business in the wrong place at the wrong time, end quote. Yeah, that's pretty well said. While all three Asian American enclaves were ostensibly representing Asian Americans in the United States, the subtext here is that it wasn't really Chinese or Japanese shop owners taking the heat. It was largely Korean Americans. I speculate that it's because of the latecomer status of Koreans in L.A., general myopia by the LAPD, and a situation out of control that really ended up with Koreans getting the brunt of the violence. Koreans were a brand new immigrant contingent yet to find their legs. The Japanese and Chinese communities had been around for much longer. Chinatown had been established as early as the 19th century, while Koreatown was a product of the late 20th. Now, having said all this, the rest of the city was not faring well during the riots. The post office, yes, the same organization with the motto of neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night, well, the post office suspended mail in 14 zip codes because armed rioters aren't on that list. Baseball and basketball games were canceled. Government offices, courthouses, libraries, banks, corporate offices, and shopping malls all slammed shut their doors. Commuters couldn't get home due to congestion. Many walked or hitchhiked. Bus service on April 30th ended at 6 p.m. as a way of attempting to enforce curfew. And only by mid-afternoon did the guards start to deploy across the city. Here's a clip of the emergency broadcast system announcing the deployment. The California Army National Guard has been deployed to assist the Sheriff's Department and Los Angeles Police Department in a mutual aid operation to restore law and order and to protect life and property. This concludes this activation of the Los Angeles County Emergency Broadcast System. The LA Times described the Guard as cooling their heels for want of ammunition. Yes, that's right. You had soldiers with rifles and no ammo. Nobody had ever given the order to ship it. Governor Wilson, in his Thursday, April 30th press conference, said, quote, This ammunition problem should not have occurred. It will not again. End quote. Another equipment problem involved the men's rifles. M16 rifles had the capability to fire fully automatic. A delivery of special locking plates was needed to convert the rifles to semi-automatic so that the guard didn't use fully automatic weapons on U.S. citizens. Those locking plates were also late. When finally equipped, some of the guardsmen hit the streets. Many of the guardsmen were just back from the Iraq War. No, not that Iraq War, the one, not the one from the 2000s, no, the other one. The one from the 90s, remember? It's so hard to keep track of misadventures in the Middle East, isn't it? Here's an NBC News report on it and has great audio that I think sets the mood for the National Guard. In the first day of fighting, in which more than 1,400 sorties have been flown, the U.S. says it has lost one pilot and one airplane, largely because missiles are being used to pave the way. This is what Iraq faces, devastatingly accurate cruise missiles launched from ships at targets too well defended to be attacked by warplanes. And Pentagon officials say Iraq's military will see thousands of additional attacks before week's end from carriers in the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf and bases all over the Saudi Peninsula. Isn't it amazing how devastatingly accurate cruise missiles were in plentiful supply over in the Middle East, but guardsmen had no ammunition for their rifles in keeping the peace in one of our own cities? They could have asked the Korean Americans for ammo, probably. Riding on armored vehicles, Humvees mostly, but also M113 armored personnel carriers, the National Guard started to roll into the street. 
Listen to this L.A. Times description of their deployment. Quote, In some areas, soldiers were welcomed, but many were heckled and taunted. Some appeared jittery, including a few who had served in the Persian Gulf War. This is a lot different from attacking an Iraqi bunker, Colonel Roger Goodrich said. There you know who the enemy is. This is citizen soldiers facing citizens. End quote. I haven't looked up the deployment orders for the guardsmen sent out into the field in L.A., but citizens on the ground in Koreatown claim that not only did the police skip out on the neighborhood to guard Chinatown, but the National Guard didn't set up in Koreatown at all. One said, quote, What a joke about the National Guard. They were nowhere to be seen in Koreatown, that's for sure. End quote. Another shopkeeper, upon learning that the National Guard had been paid $1.7 million in overtime, said that they'd done, quote, Absolutely nothing. The money should have been distributed to us. End quote. Without police, without the guard, Koreatown became a trap. It was an incinerator. Flames and looting torched away the livelihoods of thousands of Korean Americans who lived there. I want you for a second to imagine your own neighborhood. Now imagine the police cordoning off the edges of your neighborhood and all hell breaking loose inside. When I think of some of the places I've lived and the cauldron of violence it would become, it scares the hell out of me. It's the kind of image that turns someone from a normal citizen into a paranoid prepper. Neighbors you saw mowing their lawns or washing their cars last week would be vigilantes now. You'd see the whites of their eyes as their adrenaline spiked, waned, and spiked again. Well, you'd see all that except that harsh, likely toxic smoke billowed between you. The sounds and guns, sirens, and screaming would persist all day long. The irony is that during the mob violence of the L.A. riots, tens of people would be killed and hundreds hurt. Many would carry the scars forever, yet there would be no official closure. Murders would go unsolved. There would be no video footage of deaths. Because that fog of war clouded everything, there would be no arrests, no arraignments, and no cases brought against many of the perpetrators of violence. Anyway, speaking of prepping and preparation, in evaluating this siege of Koreatown, I think one aspect of its defense is really important, and that's the military training of many Korean men. Way back in the first podcast, I talked about how Billy Do, Soon Ja's husband, had served in the Republic of Korea's armed forces. He wasn't the only one. A distinct military culture existed in South Korea starting in 1948, going through the Korean War from 1950 to 53, and has more or less continued through this day. Here's a clip of Kat Kim, who was a little girl at the time, telling the story of her uncle who was organizing K-Town at the time. Apparently, my uncle um, actually gathered up, gathered up all the guys at his work. He uh, owned Daywon Mortars on Olympic and uh, Vermont, and um, gathered up all the workers, all the salespeople, um, and basically loaded them up with guns and had them guard the dealership and this mini lot. Apparently, um, this place. Yes, this this place right here. It was the first time I ever heard of someone actually holding a gun, shooting a gun at someone, you know, especially with someone that looked like me, you know, because the only time I seen guns really at that time was in movies and, you know, you know, superheroes don't usually look like me. <laughs> um, and it didn't really click in my head where the, where would they get these guns? And now even I wonder how my Uncle John had access to all these guns. It's not like guns are not something they talk about, you know, most kids have never seen one but you know it doesn't surprise me with all the military training that um, Korean males have had you know 
they might they at least know enough military tactics to get organized real fast and know what they're doing. That military experience made a tremendous difference, and it also explains the familiarity and comfort with which Koreans picked up weapons. Because I'll be the first to tell you, firing a weapon is not trivial. Hollywood, which was not far from these riots, and actually was involved in the riots too, might, well, they might make you think otherwise. Firing a weapon with the intent to harm doesn't just create a loud noise and a dead body. Firearms are immensely deadly weapons, but aiming at a moving target is difficult at best. Dealing with the shock of the discharge, the hearing loss, and not getting shot yourself are all things a civilian does not have much experience in. Soldiers train using thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition. They spend whole afternoons getting shot at. With plenty of time working on tactics and the uses of cover and high ground, they really made the defense of Koreatown far different than if the veterans hadn't been present. Indeed, many use the Korean War as a benchmark for violence. And by that I mean when you're reading the accounts, people talk about the Korean War and the LA riots in the same breath. This was just the normal course of violence for the Korean Americans. Interesting side note, one commentator talked about how these Korean Americans with military experience constantly reference Korean power and other nationalistic phrases. Some of those people got onto local Korean media outlets like Radio Korea to spout, this is our land, sort of catchphrase that would have been familiar to those raised with the concept. There you go, homeland consciousness coming right back. In any case, the military experience is why, in my opinion, there are only two Asian Americans killed in the next few days. One case of Tan Lam, whose exact ancestry I can't pin down, involved armed men cornering him outside of his smoldering store and killing him. That case remains unsolved to this day. The other death was the death of one of the K-Town defenders. It happened on the evening of April 30th. Han of the youth contingent describes the scene. Quote, when we heard the news on the radio in the evening, I cannot remember the exact time, but it was getting dark. There was, forgive me here for my mangled pronunciation, Wansung Myok on 3rd Street, although it is gone now. When we heard that a mob was trying to break through the roof of the restaurant, we sent a separate force of men there. The group fired blank shots into the sky when they arrived. However, the Koreans who guarded it didn't realize that these shots were fired by members of the same group. They shot at members of the same youth group. So Jay Sung was shot and killed while three others were wounded and sent to the hospital, end quote. In other words, a friendly fire incident happened with a kid named Eddie Jay Sung Lee. These were kids, remember, toting guns, and there's few things in the world as scary as a jittery 19-year-old carrying a weapon. Maybe if there had been more of the old-school military types on hand, it would be a different story. Eddie Jay Sung Lee's story sounds like the quintessential Korean-American tale. The way his parents tell it, they first emigrated to Virginia in 1972, founded incredibly inhospitable Korean immigrants, and then moved to Los Angeles. Both parents had worked menial jobs to provide for their family, moving to America out of a sense of hope. Eddie's mother says that because she worked low-wage jobs, she didn't come into conflict with Latinos or blacks in L.A. Most of what she learned of the conflict came later in the news. She said of her son Eddie, quote, since childhood, Eddie had a sense of justice and was full of energy. He had a strong personality and wanted to become a soldier or a policeman or such. Even when he went on to junior and senior high school, he still dreamed of the same. So he was very active even in his thoughts and preferred being outside over studying at a desk. Even when he was young, he would go camping or fishing to somewhere far. End quote. Eddie sounded like a good kid. 
and he got wrapped up in wanting to fight the injustice of the moment and the violation of Koreatown. There's a really brutal picture I saw of him laying on his back on the ground staring at the sky. He's limp, his bright white shirt is stained with dark red blood, while the rest of his buddies lay injured nearby. There are some police and first responders triaging the situation, but your eye keeps going back to Eddie's body. They look like kids, and they are. The original report of rioters on the rooftop of that restaurant that Han described, coming in around 10 p.m., was distributed via Radio Korea as they relayed messages as fast as possible. They did not have time to check accuracy. The speed of information passage was more important than veracity. That's a relay for you. Eddie was, as far as I know, the only Korean-American death during the entire L.A. riots. Now, regardless of the casualties, the fighting went on. Rioting did not stop. The LAPD continued to be skeptical of the Korean-American defense of K-Town, but they didn't stop it. Here's LAPD Captain Steve Gates, no relation to Daryl Gates, I think, talking about the Korean response on Thursday the 30th. I think that uh, that uh, that uh, that that's undoubtedly uh, something that uh, has to be uh, thought out carefully. Certainly, people have the right to protect themselves, but at the same time, they have to understand that uh, officers uh, have to distinguish between the, uh, the the bad and the good out there, and that might be difficult if someone's on a roof. Uh, with an Uzi. I don't think that's a good idea. Are you Captain, can you give us an up-to-the-minute count on the number of deaths and injuries? No, I don't have that information. From what I understand, if you were watching the television that night, watching interviews like that, I heard that you saw two videos replayed over and over and over and over again. Rodney King's beating, and to a lesser extent, the gunning down of Latasha Harlan's. Over and over Images of extreme violence against black citizens were then cut in with images of extreme violence in the streets. Wish I could find replay of these videos. I haven't been able to, but I just have to take people's word for it that they watched TV that day and that's what they saw. From Hollywood to Long Beach and all the way out to Riverside County and the Valley, fires burned and rocks plunged through windows. One LAPD officer, actually a Korean American himself, said that many of those arrested that night and the other nights were from out of town, enticed into joining the mayhem by media coverage of the riots. LAPD did not have enough personnel to block traffic coming into the city. It was really another lack of imagination from that day. Violence erupted then in Atlanta. 34 cop cars on April 30th had their windows shattered. And in Washington, D.C., the entire police department mobilized for trouble. Mayor Bradley and Governor Wilson talked on the phone as midnight approached on the 30th. They agreed that more National Guardsmen were needed to enforce the curfew that nobody was heeding. The total request for Guardsmen rose to 6,000. I'm sure they talked about making sure that the soldiers had ammunition this time. By the end of the day on April 30th, 25 people were dead, 572 injured, and hundreds of fires had torched stores, causing somewhere between $200 and $250 million worth of damage. Adjusted for inflation, that's between $360 and half a billion dollars worth of damage in today's dollars. The fires had intensified LA's persistent smog problem. The noxious particulate coming from the torching of things that you shouldn't ever torch had made those with asthma, bronchitis, and emphysema particularly miserable. After leadership took their sweet time getting them prepped, the National Guard troops began to enforce a curfew. Well, the folks in Koreatown would tell you different, but 
There's a picture of a National Guardsman taken by photographer Albert Diaz that I really like. In the picture, a soldier who looks young, but then everyone looks young to me these days, is ducking from sniper fire at 6th and Western. That location would put him pretty close to, or even possibly in, Koreatown. So that calls into question some of the Korean-American accounts of the National Guard not showing up. The young soldier in the picture looks utterly shocked. And he should have been. The night of April 30th was filled with flame and flying lead. Our friend Han Sung Chang, the one in the youth group, describes how they stood guard when they heard of the arrival of the National Guard on the scene. In a word, they didn't change anything. They didn't change their formations or head home. Quote, we did this for three days and didn't sleep at all. End quote. So while the National Guard deployment made a difference on the streets, supposedly, Korean Americans insist they weren't feeling relief. So let's talk about May 1st, the third day of the riots. The next morning, Angela Oh hit the streets again. This part of the clip where she again fearlessly gets out there and gets into the neighborhood was the clip that convinced me that I should have her in this podcast. So let's go to that. Um, the next morning, I went to Koreatown at 9 o'clock to the KAC office, the Korean American Coalition office, and the Korean Youth Center offices, just to see what they were going to do, because I knew that community would be calling those two offices. They're, you know, these two agencies that are the most visible in L.A. So um, I'm there, and the executive director at KAC is packing things up. I'm saying, where are you going? And he says, we're getting out of here. And I just saw gunshots right across the street. We're not staying here. I said, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you're staying right here because people are going to be calling here. And we've got to start connecting. And he says, yeah, you're right. But let's wait for, we should talk about that. Let's wait for Dr. O to get here. He's no relation. He's, he's uh, the chair of their board. And he got there in about 20 minutes. And we all talked. And, and we decided, yeah, we, got, we should just stay here. And, and the phones were going crazy. They were going off the hook. Pretty soon we had volunteers coming down. People wanted to help immediately. Um, Kaba went over to the Oriental Mission Church and set up a legal assistance center right away. Um, the CPA's group and the, um, a number of church people came out right away with food and clothing and things. Radio Korea kicked right in. They became sort of like the, um, the communications tool for the community. The absolute fearlessness of some people involved in this riot is amazing to me. It was the actions of those who showed fearlessness that made the difference during the fiery nights of late April and early May of 92. This is what leadership looks like. This is what you need in your community. Because of the actions of heroic people like Angela O, oh, the tide seemed to be turning. Organizations started to mobilize for peace. I think everybody kind of realized that this had gotten out of hand. People were stepping up to speak out against the horrific violence of the day prior. The media played their clips of violence. But something happened early on the morning of the 1st that changed the narrative. I think it really saved lives. I think it saved lives that day. Early in the morning on the 1st, Rodney King and his attorney decided they needed to get out there and say something. They needed to get in front of this. It had been a year, remember, since his beating. In the video, Rodney looks terrified. He's tearing up. And you can clearly hear the emotion in his voice when he started to speak. I just want to say, you know... Can we, can we all get along? Can we, can we get along? Um, can we stop making it, making it horrible for, for the, for the older people and the, and the, and the, and the kids? And, I mean, we've got enough smog here in Los Angeles, um, let alone to, uh, 
deal with the uh, setting these fires and and things. It's, it's just not right. It's not right, and um, it's not it's not gonna it's not gonna change anything. Um, we'll we'll get our justice. Um, they've won the battle, but they haven't won the war. We will have our day in court, and that's all we want. And just uh, I, I love I, you know I'm I'm neutral. I love every I love people of color. You know I'm I'm not a I'm not like they picking me out picking me out to be. Um, we've got to we've got to quit. We've got to quit. You know after all I mean. I can understand the, the the first upset for the first two hours after the verdict, but uh, to go on to keep going on like like this and to see the security guard shot on the on the ground, it um it's it's uh, it's just not right. It's just not right because those people are, are, will never go home to to their families again, and uh, I mean. Please, we can we can get along here. We we all can get along. We just gotta just gotta, you know. I mean, we're all stuck here for a while. Let's you know. Let's 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 try to work it out. Let's try to beat it. You know. Let's try and work it out. Can't we all just get along? As far as rhetoric goes, where you're talking about the art of giving a speech in order to instill something in other people. As far as rhetoric goes, I don't think I've ever heard anything more effective than that. It's an interrogative question that begs you to say, well, yes, of course we can get along, or no, we can't, and then you're forced to ask yourself, why can't you? I think Rodney King nailed it. The morning of Friday, May 1st, things felt different in the city, a little bit calmer. It only took several thousand military-trained men supplementing the entire LAPD force and many thousand more federal agents from a dozen agencies sent out to L.A. to make that happen, but it was working. Looting and rioting went on, but it wasn't the flood of the two previous nights. Now it happened in puddles of lawlessness, which were then stamped out and dried up one at a time. You may remember back at the beginning of the riots, William Hong's store was almost burnt down. It was what I think might be the first Korean-American store burnt down in the riots. But a neighbor named Anna had stopped the rioters short and kept them from burning the place down. You might remember that. Well, her and her roommate, Letitia, apologized to William Hong and helped in the cleanup. So something was changing. On the other side of the country, someone put a camera in front of George Herbert Walker Bush, the first Bush, the president, and told him to speak about the riots. So here's his response. Tonight, I want to talk to you about violence in our cities and justice for our citizens. Two big issues that have collided on the streets of Los Angeles. First, an update on where matters stand in Los Angeles. Fifteen minutes ago, I talked to California's Governor Pete Wilson and Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley. They told me that last night was better than the night before, today calmer than yesterday. But there were still incidents of random terror and lawlessness this afternoon. In the wake of the first night's violence, I spoke directly to both Governor Wilson and Mayor Bradley to assess the situation and to offer assistance. Yeah, I know. The president is supposed to be a leader. They're supposed to be inspirational, whatever. But I don't really get comfort from speeches from politicians. They're the executive of a bureaucracy. Their job is to calm you down as they continue to take your money. Anyway, that's just my bias talking. 
Bush also announced that the federal government would be considering federal civil rights violations in the Rodney King case. That's a big development. From what I understand, the last death of the riots involved the National Guard. On May 3rd, Victor R. Rivas approached a guard checkpoint in his vehicle, driving erratically, swerving his car, and eventually hitting one of the guardsmen. The National Guard opened fire and killed him. I have to wonder what happened there. But with the streets quieter, and perhaps with those out-of-towners no longer taking advantage of the chaos, Angelinos everywhere took stock of the damage. A total of 63 people lay dead, 10 at the hands of the LAPD, one by the guard that I just mentioned, and the rest through various forms of citizen-on-citizen violence or accident, including one young man who was trapped inside a store as it burnt to the ground. To give you an idea of the number of wounded, chew on this. 83 hospitals in the L.A. area treated riot injuries. The hospitals actually had to ration equipment and supplies. Roads had been made impassable. You couldn't even get around to share things. In other news, the rioters had lit around 1,200 fires. Police had arrested over 5,000 people, holding them in temporary stockades, apprehending them a dozen at a time. In one jail, 130 people were stuffed into a cell made for 29. A side effect in the incineration of much of South Central was that there was no longer any place to buy food or pump gas or launder sooty clothes. Many businesses would never reopen, though people thought, they thought, that insurance would come through and that the government would give out relief. We'll talk a little bit about that. It didn't quite work out that way. In Koreatown, the damage was profound. Of the $500 million in property damage, which is about $900 million in today's dollars, much of it included Korean businesses. A Korean-American swap meet at Vermont and Manchester burned to the ground, as did the rest of the east side of that block. In that block, fire had wiped out 42 businesses and 120 jobs in a matter of hours. And you saw those militias, the ones we've mentioned, start to stand down. I haven't run across anyone in the militias talking about what they did with their firearms after the riots calmed, but I don't imagine that they parted with them. In fact, as you'll find out in the fourth episode, people flocked back to the gun store. On Saturday, May 2nd, 7,000 people came to a cleanup rally at the baseball field at the intersection of Olympic and Normandy. We will not retaliate, the loudspeaker belting prayer said. We will wait with patience. We will forgive with love. Monday, May 4th, Mayor Bradley lifted curfew and reopened schools. And I guess you could say things went back to normal. That was not the end of the damage to the Korean-American community, however. The media portrayal of them went on, telling stories about the black and Korean nature of the conflict. For instance, in a Newsweek article I read from May 10, 92, so published a few days after the riots ended, Newsweek said, quote, A year ago, a Korean grocer shot and killed Latasha Harlins, a black 15-year-old, after a fight in a market. The black and Korean communities have been at each other's throats ever since. End quote. Beyond all of what we've talked about regarding the racial constitution of the people attacking Koreatown, which we've talked about a little bit, whether they were from in town or out of town, as many were reported to be, and the generally unfair portrayal of all races by the media, I think this passage from Newsweek identifies a problem. I think this is a good spot for a deep dive on media sentiment about the Korean Americans during the riots. Because as the violence died down, the media began to form a story about what the riots meant and what they represented. As I've pointed out several times so far, the stories on the ground are different than the stories told in their newsrooms, but that never stopped anyone. 
Angela O oh and other commentators have remarked on the bizarre and often unhelpful media coverage as being symptomatic of America's total ignorance about the Korean American minority. Koreans were that entrepreneurial model minority, supposedly, that embraced the American dream through hard work. They were the manifest Horatio Alger story. Yet at the same time, Korean Americans are using firearms against other Americans, and this clearly created some skepticism for the police, the National Guard, and the media. It seems to me that the media jumped into this lack of knowledge of the Korean American immigrants and started to create a narrative, and then presented evidence to confirm that narrative. It's really a vicious cycle that enslaves common sense to me, from 92 to today. Individuals are the most valuable thing in the world, but they aren't treated that way in popular media. While they covered Eddie J. Song Lee, for instance, and his death, they didn't cover the individual stories as well as I wanted them to. And look, I'm not the only one castigating the media for portraying the Korean Americans as thuggish gun nuts. I have showed you that already. You get the distinct impression of distrust. I'm not sure how to describe this other than a certain exoticism. Like the media is viewing some kind of rambunctious animal. It's easy to see why Korean Americans felt cheated by the media. They'd lived through incredible violence and had news anchors sitting in air-conditioned studios throwing shade on the defense of their neighborhoods. As the media cast around for informants to explain what had happened in K-Town and in the rest of L.A., they landed on one of the characters we've gone back to again and again in this podcast, namely Angela O. Oh. Angela, who's been kind of a source for us again and again, began to land airtime on various programs. She was well-spoken. She knew a lot about the community. One of Angela's appearances was as a spokesperson for Korean Americans on the May 6th edition of Nightline with Ted Koppel. It was, at the time, a very popular news show that ranks up there with most headline news shows today. Think 60 Minutes or NPR's All Things Considered, that kind of thing. I spent some time and a little bit of money trying to get a recording of this Nightline segment. With libraries closed for COVID, it was a little weird, a little tough, but I lucked out. Before we play the clip, I want you to put yourself in Angela O's shoes. Imagine getting on television and being asked to represent all of your ethnicity. Angela had to balance her own experience as an educated lawyer with the experience of the community she represented. Remember, we're talking about her representing David Jew, for instance, or Eddie J. Song Lee's mother, or Soon Ja Du. Angela O oh wasn't on the street carrying a weapon. She was trying to do her work as a lawyer and community organizer. Later, Angela would address this idea of her representing all of Korean Americans, which I've seen being 700,000 to a million in the United States. She says that, quote, The sentiments I am expressing are sentiments I know exist within the Korean American community. I don't necessarily always agree with the stuff I'm communicating to the public, but I feel I have a responsibility to do that, end quote. And further, she was being thrown into a situation where she had to comment on a black Korean American conflict that everyone knew was far, far more complicated than the news made it out to be, including herself. Anyway, here's the Nightline clip. Much of the show prior to her segment had been focused on the black-Korean conflict, which we have talked about so far, so you should understand the context. Joining us now is Angela Oh, a criminal lawyer who has worked within the legal community in trying to address tensions between blacks and Korean-Americans. She is the president-elect of the Korean-American Bar Association of Southern California. She joins us from our Los Angeles bureau. 
You must have heard it again and again and again uh, from black citizens in that community. They just don't get it. There is this tremendous cultural gap. And to that, they add the point, wait a second, we've been here for hundreds of years. These Koreans are the ones who are here for a few years or a generation or two. If there's a culture gap, let them learn our culture. To which you say what? To which I say that is exactly what the goals are of most immigrants that come to this country. Certainly, we understand that coming and making the decision to be in this country and to make our lives here and to raise our children and see our future in this country means making that adjustment. Uh, I think it's very unfair and I think it's very unrealistic for demands to be made upon an immigrant population and I'm talking about an 85 percent first generation that means immigrant population to be able to instantaneously pick up the language instantaneously participate in the political process instantaneously establish an economic base and instantaneously deal with human relations issues the issue of race relations is something that this country has struggled with from its inception. And I think that at this point in time, it is extremely unfair and extremely unrealistic to expect this new wave of most recent first-generation Korean-Americans to suddenly make that shift. Ms. O, let me just interrupt you for one moment. That picture we're looking at right now is a live picture of President Bush, who has just landed in Los Angeles. Air Force One, as I say, has just landed carrying President Bush during his two-day visit. Mr. Bush is expected to survey the damage to the nation's second largest city. The White House has said that Mr. Bush is not bringing any new blueprint to fix urban tensions, but would explore ideas with city and community leaders. Ouch. Did you hear that? She answered questions about the expectations on immigrant communities dealing with racial tensions, but then he cuts her off for President George H.W. Bush walking off of a plane. He hadn't even started to speak yet. Yeah, we'll go back to it. Now, let's go back once again to Angela O. Oh, you were just making the point that it's not fair to, to expect so much of new immigrants, but the black residents of these communities say, wait a second, your people are choosing to come into our neighborhoods uh, with a disproportionately high number of businesses that we probably don't even need, like liquor stores. They're making very good money, and it is seen by them as being at the cost of the ability of blacks to own their own businesses. You know, just as you find it rather puzzling as to where the source of information is on those statistics that you read earlier this evening, I find it sort of puzzling where the African-American community gets that kind of information. Uh, we choose to be there? No. It is out of economic necessity that, that we are there in those areas where they can afford the overhead. And it so happens that the overhead is affordable in those areas. And there is a need. Because if you look in areas like South Central Los Angeles, you don't see the boys' markets, the Lucky Stores, the Vons. Um, God forbid that you would see, you know, a Gelson's in South Central Los Angeles. Now, if I may, I'd like to just reflect on President Bush coming down here to see the damage in L.A. I'll tell you I what, may, may, may I ask you I just to, let me just ask you, could, to, well, let me just yes. ask you to hold that thought for one minute, and we will come okay. back to it. We just have to take a break, uh, and then uh, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about the President's visit. Back in a moment.
This is kind of painful. Did you hear that music at the end, the really scary stuff? Well, that scary music was thrown over a graph showing the proliferation of Korean-American-owned markets in L.A. over time. It goes up. The graph is going up. You get the feeling of menace when you're seeing this graph over that music. And I would laugh, but you almost want to cry because the whole thing seems cheap. Get this, when the commercial break happened, what did they cut to, right? We're talking about Asian-American businesses in America. What did they cut to? They cut to a Toyota commercial. I hear some poor sap named Al bought a Toyota Celica Ultra. Yeah, they're selling cars in America. It's an Asian-American company. I can't make this up. This interview was unbelievable when I saw it. All right, back to it. And we're back once again with Angela. Oh, you were about to uh, make an observation on the president's visit to L.A. Yes, I think it's very good that he's here in Los Angeles. Um, For him to be able to survey the damage that his policies and his leadership in this country in terms of setting the priorities on our political agenda, what they have yielded. This is the harvest that his leadership has yielded in the way of human cost, human toll. The anti-immigrant sentiment that we are living with right now, the anti-English uh, sentiment, anti-non-English sentiment, where there is absolutely no respect, apparently, for uh, people's desire to preserve a piece of their culture uh, by way of language, the failure to address the needs of our youth, of our elders, of our infirm. Our priorities have been, frankly, screwed up the last administration or two. That's a pretty tough observation, uh, and yet I I suggest that for the first time, you and leaders of the black community might find yourselves completely in accord, maybe not with the, the, the precise points that you make, but at least in the sense that there is a feeling that this administration has not paid a lot of attention to the needs of any other than the majority. Now, is, is there at least there the beginning of common ground, bridges? Yes, there is. And I want to make a a statement about this whole black Korean thing that the media has been portraying. It's a very damning thing that the media is is doing. Because the fact of the matter is, I know that my uh, Korean American brethren and my black brothers and sisters, my Native American brothers and sisters, my Latino brothers and sisters, we feel no hatred innately for one another. This is a myth that's being created by the press. It is a myth that is being created and fueled by the kind of rhetoric, uh, very, I think, uh, thoughtless rhetoric that is coming out of some of our quote-unquote leaders in the political arena, in the um, spiritual area, and in um, the community. Unfortunately, you know, there is something called um, opportunism. And, you know, people who buy into this uh, black Korean tension being the issue are just way off base. I mean, that is certainly a problem in Los Angeles. I'm not negating the fact that there have been conflicts. But I'll tell you what my belief is, and I think the sentiments of most people who think this thing through. And that is that Koreans, for the most part, we've been in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's a way to say it succinctly. If we had been green people, if we had been purple people, if we had been Jews, as that was the case during the 60s and the Watts riot, they would be the scapegoats. And I want to make very clear that I'm talking about scapegoating. We aren't victims. Make no mistake, Koreans do not view themselves. Korean Americans do not view themselves as victims. We are being scapegoated. We know it. 
I like this part. I really think she does a good job because everything I've read about this conflict confirms what she's saying. Their race relations are incredibly complex, not subject to sound bites. That Korean Americans took on entrepreneurship out of economic necessity, that they moved into these neighborhoods because it was all they could afford. And that the siege they'd endured in K-Town and elsewhere, both at the hands of the media and by the rioters, was the result of scapegoating. This clip got me fired up. The dismissal coming from him just enraged me. But I'll let her have the last word. And you may or may not agree on what she's saying. But I think it's worth hearing her out. Let me, let me just ask you, because we're, we're almost out of time. We're down to our last 45 seconds or so. Will most of those merchants go back into South Central, for example? That is open for anyone's guess. You hear right now that some people will never go back. You hear that the immigration into this country may uh, cut back significantly, which would be a shame, because people do not see this country as the place where the American dream can be realized. Um, we are seeing around the globe that the American dream maybe is the real myth that is out there. Angela Oh, you are, if nothing else, an extremely eloquent spokesperson, and I thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you. Good of you to be with us. We'll be back in a moment. Man, what a train wreck. Did he just call her eloquent? Even if you disagree with her about the, what the American dream entails... For Korean Americans who had started businesses in America, supposedly following the American dream, they had not only lost their businesses to massive riots based on racial prejudices that predated their arrival, then they had been blamed for it. This is a disaster. I'm embarrassed by Ted Koppel, and I really feel for Angela having to take on this role as ambassador. I was seven years old at the time it was taped, so there's not much I could do about it now. But... Suffice to say, I can't fathom being thrown into that position. So maybe you, the listener, are a churchgoer. Imagine being responsible for speaking for your entire congregation on a moment's notice. Or maybe you're in college, right? Your class of 20, what are we on? 2021 coming up. Imagine having to explain what your graduating class thinks on any given day. The expectations for Angela O were staggering. She said about this later, quote, I know I'm not a representative of the majority of the Korean American community in Los Angeles. I think I give voice to their anguish, but I'm not a merchant. I've never run a shop. Nobody in my family runs a shop. They're all factory workers, end quote. She did what she could in the moment. It was an introduction of Korean Americans to the United States and an introduction of the United States to Korean Americans. And Angela had to mediate that relationship. Later that summer, she comments on this a little bit more. This is from that question-answer session that I pulled audio from before. So here she is talking about more media appearances. So I, I've always felt that uh, the media had, had a very large role in exacerbating tensions uh, between blacks and, and Korean Americans. I mean, a very large number of the Korean merchants that, that I knew in L.A. had very good relationships with, with their customers. Uh, and the fact that you don't see uh, the boycott spreading a lot faster I think his testimony to this, and that story was always ignored for, for years in the mainstream press. And I was wondering if, if you, as someone from LA, if you think the media has a special responsibility in this case, since it may have been part of the evolution of the problem. I think you guys need to be very conscious of the fact that you always, you're in a very powerful position. I mean, you've ruined my life, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's like I can't go anywhere in Koreatown now. 
But uh, no, seriously though, you guys play a very powerful role because I'll tell you something that's more current. That is true. We all know that that's true. That it's what sells papers. The conflict sells papers. It happened to me on a talk show at the last moment. The producer changes the topic from one kind of discussion to the black Korean conflict. I'm the only Korean on the show with four black men. And I was like not very happy at the end of it. She got a lot of expletives when we finished taping. But um, what's happening in Koreatown right now, for instance, is the victims, you know, who were hit, the business people, there was once an umbrella association. Now they've split up into four different victims associations. And the reason why is because they read about what each other say in the paper. And I've met with, you know, two of the, the leadership. And I've said, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I bet you have never even talked to Mr. So-and-so directly. You just read what he says in the paper, right? He said, yeah. And same thing with the other guy I asked him. He said, yeah. You know, so it's like, why don't you just like get rid of the paper, get rid of the political people, get rid of the quote unquote leaders in the community, and why don't you just call up Mr. So-and-so and arrange a dinner and sit down and talk? Because you know what? By you butting heads this way, you are risking hundreds of families' lives. They can't wait for you guys to resolve your, your political differences and reputations and egos. You know, people are losing their homes. Kids are traumatized. Nobody's even asked, how did these events affect our children? Nobody's even asked that. It's tough, you know, because it seems to me that there's a phenomenon in these tinderbox situations after they've gone up in flames that the media steps in after the violence has started, after it's ended usually, and they start to craft their own narrative of winners, losers, aggressors, and victims. It's something I pointed out and counted as cast our first podcast series on the Battle of Athens. In that case, the media types that arrived after the conflict was over included the New York Times and Harper's Magazine, and they painted participants as unhinged and violent veterans, and they pitched it as a black and white conflict, and I don't think it's that. That's just not what it is. So there's a pattern here, and it kind of looks like this. First, the media takes no interest in the stories of people suffering. It's not a coherent story. It doesn't fit into a narrative of the week. And reporting is scant and scattered on those subjects. Did the media report on the everyday killings of Korean American store owners? Well, they did, but it was buried at the back of the A section. Did they report on the beatings of black people by police? They did, but a lot of time they didn't have video, so it didn't stick. For groups like Korean Americans, the media largely ignores them until something newsworthy happens. While some reporters try to get to the truth, many just try to twist the events, and then what results is resentment and distrust. But don't get me wrong, when I criticize the media, it's not because I don't think we should get rid of the fourth estate. No, we need a free press. But that doesn't mean the media can approach stories without a sense of ethics. We expect doctors to follow the Hippocratic Oath. Journalists have a code of conduct too. It's spelled out by groups like the Society of Professional Journalists. But I feel like the third part of their code, number three, bullet number three, is often violated. Bullet number three, quote, provide context. Take special care not to misrepresent or oversimplify in promoting, previewing, or summarizing a story, end quote. Well, I have witnessed again and again an inability to take responsibility for providing context. The cost is invisible, often invisible, but I think it's real. What I really think is needed after an outbreak of violence, like in spring of 92, is a pause. Information needs to be collected and relayed, but it needs to be done so responsibly and not to inflame more violence. I got the opposite impression here. I'm sure they had the best intentions, but you know how the road to hell is paved. 
The more I dig into subjects like this, the more complicated the mural of a riot becomes. Broad strokes of media narrative start to become blotted by stories of the troubled, embattled, and courageous people on the ground. So, back to the smoldering ruins of L.A. here. At the same time the Korean-American community took licks from the media, agents of the federal government flooded these places that the HOLC had redlined half a century ago. The Small Business Administration, FEMA, the National Guard, the LAPD, city government, state government all wanted their forms filled out. For the Korean-Americans living in the worst-hit areas, it was an encounter with government agencies they'd never heard of before. Remember, the Du family could hardly speak English. Many of the businesses that burned to the ground were out of compliance with local regulations, labor law, environmental compliance, you name it. Many owed back taxes or had taken out rip-off insurance policies that shafted them. The situation in L.A. put Koreans into conversation with a bureaucracy that they didn't know existed. One decent segment from that show, uh, Nightline, that Angela Oh appeared on showed a Korean-American shop owner's son standing out in the burnt husk of his family store. He's approached by a bulldozer operator who says that he'd been called by the insurance company to knock down the rest of the building. The young Korean-American man then has a plead with the insurance-hired bulldozer operator to not knock it down because that was the only evidence of their losses. I never found out what happened to him. This three-punch combo, the violence of the riots, the media portrayal of Korean-Americans as aggressors, and the bureaucratic violence of the aftermath devastated Korean-Americans. But in a way, it galvanized them as well. It's what had happened under Japanese occupation, and it happened now. And I want to cover some of that galvanization process in the next podcast, because in the final chapter of our story, we're going to talk about the genesis of a new Korean America and cover a question that I could not avoid as I reread this story. How can we stop this from happening again? Which, as I read this ending in the summer of 2020, we have failed to do. But I'm determined to learn, and I'm sure you are too, if you've stuck around with me this long. As always, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash tinderboxpodcast, SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash tinderboxpodcast. I created an email. I'm really moving up in the world. So it's tinderboxpodcast at gmail.com. Please get in touch with me. I'm happy to discuss any of this. Happy to hear from you. And I want you to come and join us for the last episode of Angel Fire. Should be a good time. In that audio interregnum, stay safe out there in the tinderbox. box.